So here we go. Listen, you got your notes. I'm going to look at those first, but then we'll look at our text from Romans chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, you could get that ready. We're turning to Romans chapter 15 this morning. And this has become a crucial passage of Scripture in my life. When the Lord has spoken to me in the past about foundational issues, about starting this work, about values that I brought to fire when I was there, or, or anything else, you know, something new that we were doing as a family, uh, there, were, there are always certain texts of Scripture that, that create a theme and values in my life that the Lord highlights. I see these as words of wisdom according to 1 Corinthians 12. In any case, he's, the Spirit of God has clearly given me, and I believe us as I proclaim this text today, Romans chapter 15 as one of our critical texts as part of the life of, of this work in our community. And I think it's one of the more important expressions in Scripture from Paul's vantage point as to what his gospel means once it's preached. So I, I want to you know, start by saying this, that this has become very important. You know, I've, I've read and meditated and studied really through Romans over the past several weeks very, very slowly, very deeply. And I mean, God was all over me during this study. It was awesome. But I really felt, just felt led specifically to go back through the Gospel according to Paul in the letter to the Romans and just really absorb and drink not what people are saying about grace in the Gospel, but what the Scripture is saying, what the Spirit is saying to me prophetically through that and what the Apostles' wisdom is regarding the Gospel and grace and our mission, etc. Because there's so much being said today about grace. There's a little bit of a popular movement that's putting wrong emphases on grace, erroneous things mixed in with some really good things. And so I really wanted to return to the source and, 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 and hear Paul and the Spirit and the Word in a fresh way. And so not only did God do that for me and speak into my spirit, but then when I was in Acts, excuse me, Romans 15, He dropped something from, uh, from heaven into my heart for this work. And so that's where I'm coming from today. That's the little history there. So I felt like the Lord was saying, look, not just as you go into a new season of harvest in September, but now just in me, I believe the Lord was saying, and I'm prophesying right now, there is a whole dimension in the Lord that we are moving into now. To something supernatural, something new. And that's what this meeting is about and what it's centered on. And I feel the witness of the Spirit in that. You know, we started with, in, with humble means, I would say numerically, though I see this as a nice, healthy, healthy group. To me, this is big for the kind of vision that we have. I'm not looking for singular big meetings. I'm looking for small churches multiplied exponentially throughout the city. Uh, be that as it may, we'll talk about that in a second. I, I always thought this work would start smaller and we would just take a small group and start ministering in the city and grow from there. We started bigger, not big, but bigger than I expected. But I believe this is the core of our work and I want to move from this into the vision that God has for us according to what we have here in these notes. So even before we look at number one, we'll get to the text in a moment. But even before we get to number one, one other thing on my heart I wanted to say to preface all this. Um... I preached several weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, on, off the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, right? 
Where Jesus says, our Father, He teaches us to pray, our Father, let it be, our Father in the heavens, let it be sanctified, Your name. Let it come, Your kingdom. And let it be done, Your will, on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God that Jesus told us to pray for, pray for is not just, Lord, show me where my job is, show me where to go to school, show me what to do next. Those things are important. I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't be against including that in the meaning of God's will. But that is not the primary meaning of God's will to which Jesus was referring in that text, to which Paul refers in Colossians 1, Ephesians 1. The will of God in these texts is referring specifically to God's overall plan for history and for creation. God has a very specific plan, a sweeping epic that began before Genesis. It began in the Trinity in the heart of God. It was discussed in council in in the, the, the primordial history of the Trinity before he created our history. In his being, in his love, and in his counsel. And it was a counsel of love as well as uh, wisdom. God had a plan that centered on his son. And that in, 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 in order to execute that plan, he created a temporary, though beautiful, lower creation. Even before sin entered the picture, this creation was meant to be temporary. I know that because of the way the plan unfolds in the promise of resurrection, new heaven and a new earth, where uh, righteousness will fill. In any case, when sin interrupted the plan, God continued with the plan while dealing with the sin issue simultaneously bless his name forever. The plan is that this creation would graduate with the human race, the believing redeemed human race, the church, the body of Christ, as the pinnacle of creation, that this uh, plan would culminate by all of creation being subsumed under the lordship of Jesus, who himself is not only the son of God, but had become the son of man, both the creator and uh, part of his creation with a body of people who were created, but then brought up into the divine family so that the rest of creation would surround the centerpiece of this marriage between the Son of God and His bride, the international one new man, the church. Praise God. In the meantime, before that happens at the end of the age, the church is to model that as a living prophecy as to what that will look like then. That is God's overall picture. And this work, as any work that purports to do the work of the kingdom, should belong to that overall plan. I believe that when the apostles spoke through these scriptures, when they wrote, they had this plan in mind. And they, they taught and they preached with this plan in the background at all times. Certainly Jesus had it. Jesus was always looking to the future. That's why he was relevant in the present. We've oftentimes gotten rid of the future. We don't even think about it or there's some teachings that completely get rid of it now. They have absolutely no understanding of the overall plan of God. They don't understand how God's executing. But Jesus always had that in his mind and so did the apostles. They always had the larger plan in mind and how our work now contributes to that larger plan. I believe that the, what, what I'm saying today will articulate a vision for this work that is our right now very humble attempt at belonging to God's overall epic, the plan of the ages, when at the end all things, according to Ephesians 1, 9, all things are summed up in the Messiah. 
And that is the introduction to my preface. Now for the preface. Just kidding. Let's look at your notes. Number one here. The history of the king's people. This is a very brief sketch of a very short history, but will lend itself immediately into also a, 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 a picture of the future. Just to give you an idea very briefly of where we've been, which will therefore uh, inform us of where we're going. And I know that there's, there's a bunch of people here that should be here in terms of hearing this. They're either working with the kids or for whatever reason they didn't come. So we're going to make this message available. I would love for everybody to hear this message. Somewhere we'll post it and we'll let you know. Uh, the vision for this work began well before the Brownsville re- Revival. Though the revival for me, just speaking personally, reinforced that original vision that really began to germinate in my heart when I was an associate pastor in Wisconsin in the mid-90s. Since I was saved, I had a concern for the identity of the church. And God put a burden on my heart. But um, when when God began to move in a mighty way in that church in Wisconsin, it started to overwhelm me. The identity of the church as an expanding image of Jesus in the earth. And so God put this on me to do a work like this then. When I came to Brownsville, I felt like that would be a real, well, it would be a reinforcement and a magnification of that vision, and it was. That's what the revival did for me personally, among many, many other things. I personally believe that the, one of the revival's purposes at Brownsville, one of its purposes, not its only purposes, but one, was to create some apostolic works in the West. There were many purposes to the revival. I could list you some uh, regarding even calling a church that was dead in its sins to repentance. You know, there were so many pastors at the altars that I prayed through with tears. I prayed for, we prayed through issues with tears. These are pastors of big works, pretty guys with their their nice beards and, you know, all clean and tan and they're, you know, just had... Larger, you know, I mean, you know, God bless them, but I mean, what do I, what are we going to pray about? Well, I'm addicted to pornography. So we, we, I mean, we, um, another guy said, should I share with my wife the adultery that I just got out of? Because these were pastors. They weren't, you know, they weren't just people just getting saved. So, you know, with, with these kinds of things going on in the church in the West, with every, all the distractions that we have, with everything available to us, one of the things the revival did was call believers back to God. And away from sin. And to bring at least like basic 101 health back to the church. The revival did not do it perfectly, but it did it. And of course there was awakening. There was refreshing. But uh, some of the most important things that were meant to spawn from that revival were apostolic works. I'm talking about kingdom culture. If you see my parentheses. Rather than denominational culture. Wow, now there's a revolution by itself. I'm talking about missions. And there were missions spawned from the revival Many unrelated to fire and some good bit continue through fire that was established. There are lifers on the field right now. And the revival was a major catapult for that. Of course, community as well as fivefold ministry, etc., etc. My point is this. Right now in this season, I believe for my life and for this work, the Lord is recovering one of the purposes of the Brownsville Revival for us. I'm not saying we're it and we're the only result of that. Hardly. I, I, I don't think that at all. I don't have that, that concept. 
But for us, those who've been in the revival or then come and join, this is all one move of God. I am, uh, what I'm claiming is that one of the points of the Brownsville revival was to start church planning movements even in American cities. I felt that before the revival, I felt that before the Lord called me to Brownsville, I felt the Lord told me that. That that was one of the purposes when I was still an associate pastor in Wisconsin. And I had no relationship with the revival whatsoever. Asking the Lord, why would you even share that with me? Well, then later he took me to the revival. And then after that, we started this work. So I then, in letter B there, there was a clear call. First, he actually spoke to Gina, then to me, to launch out at a certain time, that's February 2010, and begin a new work. The Spirit directly called us to do that. We heard the voice of the Spirit. We also had the leading, the impression of the Spirit. We had prophetic witnesses from people older, younger, and the same age um, who, who corrob- how do you say, corroborated. They, they corro- yeah, okay, very good. And they, they, they confirmed. It's probably the main word I'm looking for. We, I was blessed by Fire Church to go. We, we left in very good relationship, continue to do that. We can have that and continue to work together. And God blessed us, even though we started humbly. God brought us good people, some we didn't even know before. God just brought them here, and they moved, they relocated just to be a part of this work. And then God took care of us, gave me a full-time job, told me what He was going to do, and then did it, and we've had supporters. I mean, the Lord took care of the whole thing. The Spirit's confirmation and blessing is on it. And so the leading and the strength of it is there. The original vision that we launched out for, as you see there, still under letter B, was to manifest God's kingdom in spiritual family on mission. That's our triangle. The kingdom's at the top. And when the kingdom is manifest on the earth, when it's manifest, it looks like spiritual family on mission. You don't have a full kingdom expression if if you're not fostering holy spirit relationships with one another. Not just having meetings, but having koinonia, having fellowship and meetings that have the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, sharing of the word and prophecies. Yes, meetings, but all as expressions of spiritual family. And then that family, because it's so full of Jesus, is naturally and organically on mission. That is what the kingdom looks like on the earth during this era. It doesn't look like the new age yet. We're not changing the geopolitical structures yet. We might have an impact, but our mission is not to bring that transformation. That's for the king at a decisive moment. In the meantime, the king extends its rule. It will even impact society during days of revival. But it really expands its rule through the expansion of spiritual family on a mission. It will happen in hostile environments. It will happen under persecution. It will happen in a 1 Timothy chapter 2 free society like ours. It will happen either way. But that's what the kingdom looks like now. And that's our vision to go for that. That was what we originally went for. Our slogan, for lack of a better word, has been what we're after is discovering the way to powerful living in Jesus Christ. Our mission has been, therefore, and this is what we want to happen, to establish and multiply new house churches throughout Charlotte, characterized by Jesus Christ's centrality, being spiritual family, disciples making disciples, the presence of God's Spirit, why do I put that so far into the list when it should be a priority? Well, it is my priority, but, but we can have 
presence in different environments. I want a certain wineskin that I felt called to uh, for many years. So we want God's presence in, as new wine in this wineskin. The power of God's Spirit. I'm talking about signs and wonders, healings, miracles. The nine gifts of the Spirit. Passion for our city, where we are city-focused rather than self-focused. We're not focused on building the church, we're focused on the kingdom. We're not focused on building our church, we're focused on expanding the kingdom in our city. And then the growth will happen naturally after that. And of course, the good passion for our city, I said, and good works. Additional expressions that I believe will come, after the, come out of the expansion of that vision would be a prayer movement. I'd love to see a consistent, fiery prayer movement constantly happening. A school of wisdom where we have something set up uh, that where people uh, get resources for discipleship. These are things we've already talked about. Creative worship. What I mean by that is not just worship, but um, something that in the, the context of community and the Spirit of God, among creative people who are musical or, or, or otherwise gifted in the arts, they're creating a voice that reflects the DNA of a certain thing God is doing here. New songs, new sounds, new resources, whatever that may be. I can see that easily being spawned from something like this. Uh, and then other resources, whatever that may be. I mean, literature, whatever. I think there's potential. But the grist of what we do is expanding house churches because we have to have families. It's not even the model of house church that's my primary concern. It's the kingdom manifest on the earth. And I'm, I'm, I'm urgent about that looking like spiritual family, not just big assemblies. So that's where we're going. That was the original vision, as I say here in the next line. But the vision has not changed. It, so th- that's also where we're going. It requires radical volunteerism. It cannot depend on a paid staff. A litmus test or acid ch- test for a good church is this. I believe you can have anything. I would love to have our own facilities. I'd love to have eight, uh, an $8 billion facility paid for just for our use. I would love it. At the top of the line, everything, I have no problem with that. I just don't want to be in debt for it, but I would love to have it. I think all those things are useful if they're used with integrity and with kingdom purposes. But here's the acid test, okay? If we took away your facility, do you still have a church? If we took away your ability to budget and pay a staff, do you still have a church? Do you still have saints who are associated and attached to one another in love? Do you still have elders caring for the flock even if they're not paid? Do you still have mission and prayer if you don't have locations? All of which makes things very, very convenient. I'm not saying they're not useful, and for some works they may be necessary. But are they necessary to create church, kingdom society? Do you take these things away so the people have nothing to rally around? If the answer is yes, they have nothing to rally around. Yes, if I took away a staff and I took away a building, we wouldn't have a church. Then I would say that you, you may wonder if you have a church to begin with rather than just an assembly of disciples. So our interest is, is to create the church. I think it's noble, but I also think it's very challenging. That's what we are after. And so what I believe the Lord is saying today, or what He's putting before us, is a rallying point that's not something that's been a conventional rallying point. Not because I'm interested in criticizing what we're not, but, I, but we have to draw the contrast because it's in our culture. But I want us to view Jesus in a positive light and rally around Him in the expression that He's giving us and that I feel He's articulating today. Therefore, it requires radical volunteerism according to Psalm 110. 
verse 3, as well as many other passages. You can see it that I quote there from Matthew also. Your people volunteer freely in the day of your power. The picture is of David, who's a renegade, though he has the anointing and calling of God on his life. He runs into the wilderness, being chased out by Saul. The way of the Lord and the way of David was not to uh, insist on his vision and his calling, even though it was God-given. But even though he had the call, he had to work it out in God's timing and with God's meekness. The meekness of Yahweh had to be exalted in David if he was to have authority. And so David uh, flew like a fugitive into the wilderness. And what happened, even before he was exalted as king, there were those from every tribe who flooded into the wilderness to be with David as free volunteers from every tribe, creating a nation within a nation because it was the day of David's power. And David prophesied in Psalm 110 and said, one day the Messiah king is going to be exalted and his people will volunteer freely. Praise God. When we've rallied around a system, and I don't have a problem with paying staff. I don't have a problem with those things. But when they're the things that bring the definition or you don't have people, something is weak. It's not strong. So I chose, as we were going into this, I said, I'm gonna, I'd rather fail trying to do this than succeed not trying to do this. I want something to be stirred in our hearts where something infects us from the Spirit, where we pitch in with a new wave of encouragement and motivation from Him. I, I, I want us to be infected and to rally around Jesus rather than the way things are set up physically, even though I'm happy to do all that. Amen. So uh, the landmarks in our history as I have seen them, okay, just some of the landmarks, I've given five things there. You know, we started with a pilot team of leaders where we had meetings. We didn't try to start anything beyond that. We met once a week, I think. I was still working on a dissertation. We started slow. It gave some of our folks a chance to move here. The Dow, the Harrys, the Daniels, the, even the Bargers moved here later. And who else am I missing that actually moved here from out of town to be a part of this? Because it could be my own mother. I'd forget if I'm on the spot. Forgive me. I think that's everybody. So we just started that way, and then we had orientation meetings in the summer of 2011. Launched our house groups in September 2011. You're like, yes, thank you for telling us your history. We are so on fire right now. Thank you. I, I knew that this would bless you. I see weeping right now, but I don't want to point those people out. It would embarrass them. It's heaviness coming. We launched our house groups, groups in September 2011. We were... Several prophecies, dreams, and impressions from the Lord in number three directed us to delay our planned start for our larger gatherings. We originally wanted to do those in February of 2012, but then the Lord directed us to launch them the beginning of September 2012, the same day as Charlotte 714. So it was a significant landmark for us. And it really felt good, even though it was a small thing. You know, we had our smaller groups meeting, but we wanted to meet all together at least once a month starting in, in February, and the Spirit said no. And then released us to do it in September of that year. Well, big whoop, who cares, frankly? Well, for me, that the Spirit cared about us to give us that specific direction, that just was very encouraging. It felt like He was with us in what we were doing. It, it feels like He's calling together the bones. There ain't no flesh and muscle yet. But there's bones. That's what's happening. And the Lord's telling me, you prophesy today, and you keep prophesying according to 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, 
this thing will be built. But right now it's just skeletons. And that's all right by me. For the Lord to say, okay, this is important to me. You start, it's, it's important to me. You not start in February. You start in September. And it was on the same day as Charlotte 714. That was huge to me. That's just like that little thing, like your spouse or your good friend who knows just what you like and says just the right thing at the right time, or buys you that little gift, or gives you that little word of encouragement. It seemed so minor, but it meant the world to me because I knew he was just loving on me and saying, I'm saying yes to this work. Let me build this skeleton my way. And through prophecy, I'll call this thing together. Anyway, that's what I'm hoping. If I'm out of my mind, well then, at least I'm going to go down swinging. Let me go down striking out. Well, what if the fall's way up there? I don't care. I want to look cool, at least for some kind of picture later you could take. I felt Yesu Potom's visit several weeks ago was important. He spoke a message on Luke chapter 5 that he said was a prophetic word for our congregation. I think he was also including, you know, giving that word to fire. I'm not sure if he preached the same message there in Luke 5, no. But I, I felt like he still tailored it for us. I don't know if he totally intended that, but he said that, that if we really emphasize our relationship with Jesus and preaching the word, that God would bless this work, or what he called the congregation. And so I just felt like that was a landmark time, though to Gina, as she told me it was. So I kept it in there. Letter D, presently the Spirit is setting Jesus before us. Now this is what I'm claiming right now. Presently, the Spirit is setting Jesus before us in a fresh way as a rallying point and as a doorway through which we will enter into a new apostolic season. September 1st, 2003. You're distracted. Just kidding. Our prophetic text is Romans chapter 15. Let's read that. And By the way, when when you do get there, my key phrase that's highlighted by the Spirit is this phrase with one accord. I believe the Lord is highlighting that prophetically to us. This whole passage, but particularly like a little grenade with one accord. (laughs) You feel that? That's later on, like verse 6 or something. So let's turn to uh, Romans 15. I'll give you some exposition here. And then I've got points back in your notes. Romans 15 and, and... Let's, um, let's, let's pray now. I should have prayed at the very beginning, but I'm just, uh, I guess I'll give you the history and now it's prayer time. Praise God. Father, we, we come before you, our Father in heaven. We, we come into your presence, this holy place that you've granted us behind the veil, which is really the flesh of Jesus the Messiah. We are here with you, as the scripture says, the secret of Yahweh is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. Lord, we are here with you in intimate covenant relationship, in a new covenant way behind the veil, in the presence of God, before your throne. And we are adoring you in our hearts for loving us so much, for beaming with a love that's indescribable. It's inconceivable, really. And yet you're pouring that love upon us in the Messiah, Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. Where we would actually be gathered unto you, belonging to you in family. With you as our Father and God, we tremble because it's you. It's, it's, you're holy and you're, you're an all-consuming fire and the fear of the Lord is real. But at the same time, we're bold and comfortable in your presence. Which is the paradox of knowing you. The tension of the mystery of your covenant. We, we, we feel we, we are comforted by your spirit. 
and, and we feel like we belong and we're drinking in your love and there's no place we'd rather be and we run to you first and always. And You are God and you are good and you are great. And we love you. And we thank you for this privilege to be gathered before you, to discuss your word, to ponder the things into which angels long to look, the secrets of the blood of Jesus, the covenant of our God, the mysteries of your kingdom, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Israel, the mystery of resurrection, the mystery of the bride and the, 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 the Jews and Gentiles as one new man. Lord, we pray that in this hour you will unfold these mysteries. We pray that you'll stamp us and impress upon us the image of Jesus as well as the word that you want us to heed. Bring transformation, plant your seeds, cause growth, do what you want to do. But this is our prayer, that you really would cause the image of Jesus to be unfurled in our city in fresh ways. Lord, there's many wonderful works in this city. May we belong to that army of good works. And may we together as a city church, doing our part to reveal and release the mystery of the Messiah in our city by the power of the Spirit, by our family life according to John 13, the love is our testimony, by signs and wonders and miracles, by a harvest coming in and planting churches that are absolutely kingdom outposts throughout this city for the glory of God. Jesus is King and Lord, and in His name we pray. Amen. Verse 1, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Man, these words are so powerful, you guys. You know, most people in the first century couldn't read. So this letter was copied and copied, and when the, the saints would gather in different homes, it would be read. This is chapter 15. There weren't chapters then, but you get the idea. Paul had already expounded his gospel, and now he's speaking directly into the heart and behavior of the community of faith in light of the glorious gospel that he just proclaimed to them over the, 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 the first 11 chapters. And he's saying, now you who are strong, you ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are not strong and not just please yourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even the Messiah did not please himself. Do you understand why I'm saying Messiah? Because Christ is not merely the last name of Jesus. When we hear Christ, we just think Christian America. We don't even think what it means. We just think it's his last name. For the ancient Jews and Greeks in the first century, it had an impact that said king. This language was almost seditious. It used the word king. Christ means king because Messiah or Lord Kyrios was used oftentimes together where he was a challenge to Caesar and to Jews actually claiming, though crucified, to be the one who now sits on David's throne and there would be no other. This was powerful language. So that's what's invested with this word. Now this isn't a digression. Look at the verse. Even the Messiah king which speaks a certain vision to Jew and Greek alike. Even he didn't please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. So that's a paradox. That's those two things would not normally go together. The royalty of the son of David, the, 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 the Lord of the empire and beyond, the one greater than Caesar, is not one that should be associated with 
reproach, shame, looking like a fool for a little while. Yet Paul says he's the paradigm of your community. This shouldn't just be what you sing about and talk about. This is the way you should relate to one another. He uses him as an example in verse 3. 4 in verse 4, yeah, 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to the Messiah King Jesus. We all together with that one? This is a prayer. May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are powerful words in light of the Gospel He had already proclaimed and in light of the situation going on at Rome which we'll talk about here in a moment. So my exposition here, some key points for King's people. Let me, let me run through some of these for you. And I've given you these notes free of charge. Some of you are writing. You have the backs also. I did it all one side. You can write on, in your margins, on the back, however you want. I just want things in your hand so that you can look back at this later. Thank you. So first I want to say in letter A that this text is the summit of Paul's gospel. This is a climactic application of his gospel. For him, the gospel was not just the plan on how to get someone saved. It included that, and that's crucial. But it wasn't just that. The gospel is the whole story announcement of how God was unfolding his plan to win the victory through his son, Jesus Christ. And that gospel, therefore, created a new community that in itself is a declaration by how powerful the work of Jesus Christ is. Did, did, did you hear that? Do I even have that written? I think it is in, the, in my first sub-point, but I'll say it here again anyway. Okay? For Paul, the power of the gospel unfolded in the creation of a people. Not just people who attended meetings, but the people who corporately embodied the image of Jesus. And in doing so, automatically, organically grow and expand. Without that people bearing testimony, it's not quite clear what God has done in Christ. The Gospel is not clear. When the Gospel just becomes something to get people saved, it is that. But when it's only that, then we're not clarifying to the world what the good news is. The good news is a new creation. So if we're not embodying that seed of God in our relationships with one another, then we're not making clear what the Gospel is. That's why Paul reaches the summit of his Gospel in chapter 15. Because he's saying, now that you heard the power of this Gospel, that dares bring together people who are otherwise powerfully divided. Now that you heard what God has done in Christ, it's not just get people saved, Romans 1-4. through 4. It's recreating them, chapters 5-8. through 8. And then plugging them into one new man that has no business in loving fellowship in Romans 9 through 11. That's where he's going with the universe, so that's what he's doing here in you. 
Therefore, in chapter 15, he says, okay, all you Jews and Gentiles, weak and strong, you should be powerfully in love with one another in holy koinonia so that you're exemplifying Christ. You're not just giving people tracts for the plan of salvation, all that is valuable, but you're embodying this victory so there's no mistaking it. They will love you or they will hate you, but they will never ignore you. Because you're a statement that's supernatural that cannot be denied and it cannot be managed. Religion can be managed. The body of the Messiah cannot. Even if Stephen is on trial, his face will be the face of an angel. And they will have to go insane in order to to kill him because they, they will not be able to contend with his wisdom. Stephen gave testimony and there was no logical argument against him and there was no reason to destroy him. So what does the text tell us happened? All of his accusers on the kangaroo court simply screamed. They covered their ears and they ran at him and murdered him. Well, I want to be on your side. That's your argument? Ah! Close your ears, run at him, and just stone him, crushing his bones and his skull until he's dead. Well, very good argument. Very good. And with Stephen, you know what? He was there and they had no idea what to do with him. There was no category for Stephen. He was an anomaly. He was like an angel. All of his words were perfect. They were pure. They were right from God. He had testimony. He was connected to the heavenly sphere. There was no managing him. I'm not saying we're all going to get stoned. What I am saying is when we are in that full developed glory of the body of Christ as intended by God, it's, it's like very God himself incarnated again. This is why Paul's telling these brothers and sisters in Rome, all these things you're squabbling about, I'm not just going to tell you to get it back together because it's nice to be friends. I'm going to tell you the Gospel recreated you and knit you back together. And unless you are joined together with one accord, you won't glorify God with one voice, which is the mission. Glorifying God with one voice to Paul didn't just mean sing the same song, though I believe in that. Glorify God with one voice means give God, give God testimony in your city. Glorify God with one voice. A community like this that's blended together in supernatural harmony. I'm not talking about we're just, we're just like cultically loving one another. I mean there's, there's something deep and real created by God that has bound us together. So we may not have the divisions right now uh, between Jews and Gentiles weak and strong. But we take the positive aspect of this and say there, there is a call to, be, to become committed in one accord that will generate not just a nice community, but a glory that cannot be generated any other way. That's why the title of this message is One Accord for God's Glory. Well, number one sub-point, the gospel was spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. It carried with it a spiritual and social revolution that brought Jews and Gentiles together under circumstances that were difficult for each group to fathom. How could a Gentile ever worship with a Jew? You guys get together for the Lord's Supper. You could put pepperoni on your pizza. And for us, that's God versus the world to to not eat pepperoni. How can we have fellowship with one another? These are deep religious distinctions. I'm not even supposed to have fellowship with a Gentile, let alone eat pork with you. And some of you Gentiles, I mean, you're you're not getting circumcised and... You're not at least keeping the, the customs that keep you separate from the world. I mean, how are we supposed to interact with you? And you with us, how Paul says, but the new message is a new creation. 
You can honor one another's differences, but you don't have to oppose them on one another. There should be a deeper unity. This is why Paul wrote Romans. It's not so he could give us the Roman road. It's to see the new creation burst forth in Rome. In Rome and Jerome. Come on. Just a little word play there. I saw you when I said Rome. I just couldn't help it. So Paul's gospel from Romans in, in his letter to the Romans in three parts. In the first section, he announces the atonement and justification by faith as a grace gift. That's to, to many people what the gospel is by itself. But there are two more points. In the middle, letter B, he speaks of the new creation that God has released now and then speaks forth to the hope of resurrection when the new creation is created yet again with resurrection bodies. That's all part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is the power of the Spirit and the fact that we're a new creation. And so now the charismatic church has really come in, it, come in to part two of the gospel. But part three, we have no clue what to do with. We just think it's for all those guys that are into Israel and Jew, Jewish things. And sometimes they don't even know what to do. They just wave their Israel flag. Having no idea the whole point is a community that is still the commonwealth of Israel. But it's the new covenant with them. The Gentiles join in a commonwealth and there's purpose for Gentiles and purpose for Jews. And if these cats with all their other divisions and all their other social divisions, like even within the Arab world, there's tons of divisions, as you know right now. Then there's division between the whole Arab world divided against itself with Israel. And the West doesn't know what to do about it. And Europe is becoming you know, mostly a Muslim Europe. And this whole thing, it's like Jesus can bring all of this together. That is the goal. In fact, that's part of the message of the good news. That God is recreating the world. And that's the purpose of Romans 9-11. through 11, And that's part of Paul's gospel. It's not added on to the gospel. It's part of the gospel. And if nothing else, what does that have to do with us? That has to do with becoming the new creation as a community, not just as individuals. So letter C, he's, part of the gospel is the relationship of Israel to the Gentiles. Israel is the past root. They have an everlasting covenant. And they also have a future salvation in Christ as a nation. They have to, or else the Gentiles won't be blessed. In any case, thus, now a new community has been created. New community was a most obvious sign of the gospel's power and reality. That's why Paul said when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That doesn't mean you have a chip and a sip and you talk about His death. It means if you all can eat together at a meal which has social power, you are showing the world what the death of Jesus Christ has created. People who weren't allowed to eat together have to come together at the Lord's table. And people in the city are like, what are you doing? Getting together for a meal. Jews, Gentiles, Hebrews, Egyptians, whatever. You can't all mix. And then what the witness of the community and the apostles are supposed to say, this is the power of our king. He's recreated the world. And we are that world. So the second thing I want to bring out is that verses 5 through 6 comprise the text that God is trumpeting to us today. This is where I believe the prophetic word is for us. Verses 5 through 6. It's Paul's prayer that the God of perseverance and encouragement would grant us to be of the same mind with one another according to the Messiah Jesus. 
so that, okay, we want to be of one mind according to Messiah Jesus, whatever that means, but there's a purpose. The purpose of the answer of that prayer is so that with one accord, we may with one voice glorify God. Now that's mission. We may glorify God and the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So second, sub-point number one. To respond to God's call will require of us perseverance and encouragement from the Scriptures because it will run counter to our natural inclinations and the present rhythm of many of our lives. For those Jews and Gentiles weak and strong in Rome to obey Paul's call to revolutionize their social associations for Jesus' sake, you understand associating with the wrong people. In a culture like that, you could lose your, your business connections. and Whatever status you had could be lost at one meal. For them to meet together because Jesus is king, it was a, an absolute revolution. But we need our form of that revolution also. For them to overcome their differences and meet together in the melting pot of God's glory required a supernatural impartation from God. You understand what's going on here. I'm not just reading this text devotionally. I'm looking at what God is saying. And Paul understands you need a supernatural perseverance and encouragement to enter into the kind of relationships I'm talking about. Because if you do it in the flesh, you become some whacked off cult. But if you avoid it completely, you just become some other Christian institution. And we refuse either one. We stay wholesome by staying in the spirit with healthy leadership and open participation. So the point is, we need perseverance and encouragement because what God, I believe, is calling us to is going to be counterintuitive and counter the natural rhythms of our present lives, mine included. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, I'm not sure of the details right now. It's the original vision, kind of the, the foundation that I'm giving right now. But I feel the requirement of the Lord coming on me that if I'm going to have my part in this work, whatever that role is as leader, it's going to require a different lifestyle from me than what I'm presently living. And I can talk about some of the details in more you know, smaller conversations or whatever, but I'm talking about what I'm, things like my devotional life, things like the, the, the sacrificing for others, things which I'm sure exist now, but I'm sensing a joy and a grace in the anointing to step into something more. Not that I generate with my flesh, but in the joy of the Lord that is my strength. Because to conform to the apostolic glory will require perseverance and encouragement. That's why I've been praying that prayer for a while for us. Because this word is completely useless by itself. It has to come in the anointing. It has to have prayer behind it and speak into the future. The last thing we're going to do is come forward after this message. That doesn't make sense. This is only a word. We're supposed to go out with it, not come forward. And pray as individuals, as families, and as churches as to what these things mean. Number two, here the gospel calls us, this work, to unique, radical unity. Paul refers in verse 5 to being of the same mind. Notice, by the way, A, B, and C. He uses three phrases. It's supposed to have repetitive force, like a little cluster. Jabbing people three times in a row. Boom, boom, boom. I'm after unity. I'm after unity. I'm after unity. There has to be community or this doesn't work. 
By the way, what we're, let me say this along these lines. Okay, we may not have a conventional model right now, but neither am I consciously following a, quote, house church model. We may overlap with that, but I'm not consciously trying to do it. I'm not trying not to be the conventional, and I'm not trying to be house church. I'm trying to foster community in the spirit of the Messiah, and that's it. If we meet under a tree, if we meet in homes, if everybody wants to build a, a special room in your property, I mean, you know, to meet as a church, or God wants us to buy a huge building, we all meet in different rooms. I, I don't care about that. There's no magic to living in a house. I want to build family. It's for the positive reason of being of one voice, because even God will show up in a different way when there's a certain kind of unity. So we have this small barrage, same mind, one accord, and one voice. The same mind means we have unity of attitude and spirit. But one accord is where our emphasis is. That refers to unity around a rallying point. That's an important definition for us. I do have a few minutes left. We're we're trying not to go past 12.15, so I'm going to work for that. But the one accord, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, that's our key phrase. One accord is a word that speaks of a unity created by having a common focus, a rallying point. One voice refers to unity of mission and testimony because it speaks of the glorifying God. So number three, God is establishing today a unifying rallying point for us. That's what I'm claiming. Today, God is establishing a unifying rallying point for us today. I accidentally prayed for the word rallifying because of unity and rallying. I accidentally prayed that when I was praying about this. And I said, okay, I'm going to make this word. I'm going to create it. It's completely dorky. It just has enough arrhythmia to to completely knock us off kilter and release the word of the Lord in our midst. Okay, maybe not that, but at least it will make you think. Rallifying. The rallifying point is this, my third point from the text in letter three. The text's message hinges on this one phrase, according to Messiah Jesus. When Paul says, okay, God has to give you perseverance, encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Messiah Jesus. That's the all-important point. It's not the main prophetic point, I'm getting to that. But the defining phrase is that our unity is according to Messiah Jesus. It's not just unity. The Tower of Babel had unity. But it wasn't unity around Yahweh. So Paul's very specific. It's according to Christ Jesus. The Christ Jesus that I just preached to you for 11 chapters. And then at the beginning of chapter 15, I quoted a text that referred to the Messiah a specific way. That's the vision, Paul says, that you need of the Messiah. And around that vision, you should rally unto unity. Number one sub-point. We are literally... Okay, well, I've got to read the text here. Verse 1. Okay, back to Messiah Jesus. I'm sorry. Verse 1. Look at this. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who don't have strength, not just please ourselves. You see that word ought to? 
That word literally means we are under obligation. It refers to a debt and an obligation. In this passage, I haven't read any translation that translates it with the force that it has in the original language, though it is translated that way elsewhere. When Paul says, I am under obligation to Jews, Greeks, and barbarians. And elsewhere, he refers to people having a debt. This word literally refers to a debt. We cannot take away the strength of the word. That is a new covenant word. When God as benefactor has given us everything we need in grace, we therefore have a debt to one another and to a world that is lost. It's a debt. We are literally indebted to one another. It's the call of God if we've been born again, if Jesus himself, who was the supreme prince of the universe, lived as if he had a debt to Father God. That's the way he lived. In fact, his manner of life was as if he had a debt to us. Not saying he did, but he lived as if he did. That was the power of his sacrifice. That was the unction there. Not saying God had debt to us. But according to Philippians chapter 2, it's as if he did. He says, have the same attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Even though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Okay, he emptied himself, but earlier in the passage, Paul says that each of you should regard one another as more important than himself. And then he says that's the way Jesus lived. Paul's in the same spirit, the same point here. He's saying because we have Jesus as our model, we literally have a debt to one another. Man, seriously, how many, how many people have you seen so developed in the spirit? They live as, I'm not talking about under an oppressive debt. I mean a debt of joy and gratitude. How many people live as if they're indebted to one another? It's extraordinary. It's rarely seen, especially in the, in the West, that imposes a self-centeredness on us. Yet this was standard apostolic preaching and teaching. For Paul, this is, this is what's so amazing about this. It, it's, defi- it almost, it's almost as a defiance to apostolic ministry. There's a defiance from the apostles in, the, in, in what we see in the scripture to what we often see nowadays. Nowadays, someone who claims to be an apostle is the big shot. For Paul, as you read carefully, it's consistent. The whole point of being a, an apostle is modeling the Christ Jesus that he wrote of in the next verse there. My, Paul says, my whole job as an apostle is to model this, so all you have to do is copy me, and you have church. We organize and make everything work. Paul's like, no, just copy me. I mean, how often does he have to say it? 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Philippians 2, Philippians 4. Did I say 1 Corinthians 4? I think I did. He uses strong language all through 1 Thessalonians. If you just copy me and my team, you will have the church that God dreams of. His whole calling was to be on the lowest rung of the ladder and model a life that is selfless, cross-centered. He says, I'm in debt. Live that way to one another and you'll change the world. That was the job of an apostle. He didn't, he didn't just arrange the meetings to be a big fancy thing and he would be the CEO of a big church company. He modeled the crucified Messiah. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom. We think that passage is talking about Paul using uh, miracles, which is half of it. But the first half is, I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, Christ and this one crucified. Fear, weakness, trembling. 
And that's why I was so heavily anointed. Because I embraced the crucified life for you. Therefore, I didn't just have power. I demonstrated the Spirit Himself. He says, demonstration of the Spirit and power. Well, the power is through the Holy Spirit. So why does He say them separately? Because the Spirit is the person of the Spirit incarnate in our flesh that looks just like Jesus, who according to our verses, who did not live to please Himself, but to please everyone else. So Paul's little formula, which is a terrible word for it, is I came in totally weak and incapable and God's thick golden anointing was all over me. And I trembled at the prospect of ministering in my own power that I might impact someone in the name of Jesus, but according to my wisdom, rather than the raw power of God. So I had to erase myself. Jesus Christ in this one crucified. I had to go out of my way because I knew I could move people by my words. According to 1 Corinthians 13, I could even move them by my good works. But I had to come in crushed and broken, trusting the anointing on my life. And that's what you and I are going to contend for in this work too, by the way. Come on now. Either that happens that way or it can't happen at all. The way we express that is not just by praying and trusting God. It's by submitting to one another in a sense where we're not pleasing ourselves but pleasing everyone else. That can be done abusively in in a way that we, you know, we, we, we abuse ourselves for the sake of others. I'm not talking about an unhealthy imbalance. I'm talking about the call of Christ. Okay, moving along. We're literally under obligation and debt. Number two, Jesus is the very specific model for community behavior. He's the example of the crucified life, which is the basis of his royalty. The way the kingdom moves. Psalm 69.9, which he quotes, when he says the reproaches of you fell on me, speaks of the one suffering Yahweh's reproaches because he was so deeply taken up in Yahweh's cause, using the temple as a symbol of that cause. That's what Psalm 69 is about when he quotes the text that says, your reproaches were on me. The part of the verse right before that says, zeal for your house has consumed me. That's in Psalm 69.9, which is why Paul quotes the verse, because he's talking about building the house of God. When they would quote the scriptures in the New Testament, they were often referring to the larger passage that the little part came out of, not just the little verse he quotes. So the, 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 the people that know the scriptures there hear echoing in their minds, oh, he has reproaches because of Yahweh's house. And that's what we're living for also. Even if it means bearing reproach, we're going to live to build this house rather than just to please ourselves. Number three, Paul claims that this is what the Bible has always taught. So we get perseverance and encouragement from the Bible's message. Because to heed this call will at times require great sacrifice and inconvenience. What I'm doing here before we move on to letter D is I am releasing a word that I believe the Lord will speak through even later to help fulfill one of the purposes in one location of why God was moving in a special way to begin with. And that is to create a community like is described here on a mission. To create something in our hearts that's not just powerful pizzazz, but people who live not for themselves, but for God, His purposes, and for one another. That will require a change of life in all of us. I'm not saying change it all today. And I believe the Lord is the one to give the details, not any man. 
but I believe I'm releasing a word that's creating a frame in which God will speak to you as well as to my family about what is our call and our purpose. What are we expecting of one another where we should be expecting something of ourselves to give? I'm not saying we have problems with these things. I think we're right where we're supposed to be. But I'm just saying it's time to step over a threshold. Letter D, the fourth point of exposition. Paul establishes the ratifying point for the Romans in order to awaken and revive them. And I think that was supposed to be highlighted. I didn't do that in your notes. In order to awaken and revive them in Christ Jesus, in one another, and in their mission. The word in verse 6. Can you put that up there for us, Mike? In verse 6. Yep, you got it. It uses this Greek word, homothumadon. It's an odd word, homothumadon. You see the word homo, or half a word homo there. It can be a derogatory phrase, but it simply means same. We get that from the Greek. The Latin word is concordia. Our city is named that way. It translates from Latin, from the Greek, a word that has this as its uh, root. Homo, and then thumadon means passion or purpose. Same passion or purpose. It's translated one accord. It means the same passion or the same soul. It refers to a passionate unanimity. We may have many differences about many things. We're not talking about uniformity. We're talking about agreement over a certain rallying point. Because we are different and we'll have certain differences, that's why it's so wonderful when we're unanimous about this Messiah and the way he laid down his life for others and about the mission he's now putting on our hearts. We're unanimous about that. And that brings us together in ways that are primary over kosher diet and what you believe about drinking wine and your specific denominational idiosyncrasies, though that may have to be challenged at one point. I don't know. But these things we could even perhaps celebrate, but they're not what unify us. What unifies us is King Jesus and the mission we should not just hear that we're called to, we should feel called to that mission and to whatever work we are called to. That word, homothumadon, it occurs 11 times in the New Testament. One of the 11 is here in Romans, and all the rest are in Acts. It was actually a catchword. Luke used it on purpose, frequently in Acts, to catch our attention. And every single time, there I give you a list of examples. We're not, no, number two, number two. In every case, there was some major event or even a crisis or some significant situation that specifically rallied the people to their passionate unanimity. Every time the word occurs in Acts, when the people came into one accord, it's because something happened to create one accord. Every time. The first time it was the ascension of Jesus. The whole mission of Jesus when he was on the earth, it it received its crown when he flew up into the heavens. They're all watching that thing. And he said, they're like, okay, we're going to pray. Man, let me tell you something. If Jesus appeared here today and gave and spoke to us about reaching Charlotte, there would be a whole new feeling toward one another automatically. Just supernaturally would just be there. There would be this whole new sense of energy. And it's like, okay, we're in this thing. When I was listening to Daniel Kalenda preaching at some uh, a breakfast that they had in Raleigh, uh, Raleigh, hey, Raleigh, Raleigh, where they, you know, they, they get support for their missions. And Daniel was talking about the passion that they have for evangelism. 
the sacrifices they make to reach the masses of Africa and now also America as well as other places. I mean, just thing after thing that they talk about, the things they go through, the weights that they carry. He, and he said this all with joy and with passion. He said, look, you guys, we want you to understand we are in this thing for the long haul. I, I really, you know, even though I've been working for that ministry now for a year, I'm not there on location. I work remotely. But it's like I saw that, even though I knew it in my head, I felt it in my heart. I'm like, this guy, he has a sense of mission, and the team around him, they are driven by their mission. They have a sense there's something inside of them that works for them. It's not just them. They're partnering with it. This one accord always carries that spirit and that flavor. There's always something that either happened or something creating a circumstance that, that arrests the spirit of the people to say, we are in. We are in this. Listen, if something crazy happened in our city that I don't believe will happen, God forbid, but if the economy just completely tanked, maybe someone felt that there were uh, you know, significant warheads in somewhere near Charlotte, and so because of the banks and because of the warheads, they bombed parts of the city. Most of the city loses their jobs. There's, there's stuff, you know, people can't go to places. There, there's a shortage of food. There's a shortage of finances. People don't know what to do with themselves. They don't even know where to go. They don't know how they're going to take care of their kids or whatever. Let, let me tell you what would happen in churches that have, I mean, some people would probably start to faint for panic because they might be new to the faith or weak or this will really test their moxie. But the real people of God with grit, they will rally. It, will hap- it would happen naturally. They'd rise up. They might cry the first night or two. They might struggle at first. But the Spirit would start moving and people would start pitching in and saying, look, we're going we're gonna to get together and we're going to pray and we're going to serve our city and God's going to move. And I mean, we'll see ravens feeding people. The dead would be raised. People can't visit. Doctors are going to be healed. There's going to be family forming and they'll be suffering because of it. And, you know, people will be trying to steal things. But the church would rally in the time of crisis. In Acts chapter 4, when the word is used again, they all cried out with one accord because of the heavy persecution they were undergoing. They were all with one accord in Acts chapter 2. Not because of persecution, but the Spirit was poured out. There was this dramatic, supernatural moment with wind and then fire and then, and all these pilgrims from all over the empire who were coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost, they all leave their homes and stay there, all with one accord. They never go home from their pilgrimage. Why? Because the Spirit was poured out. For those who believe, they realize, man, Joel chapter 2 is happening now. It's not someday. It's now. So they said, we're in. Every time. Sometimes the word is used when, and for negative reasons in Acts. But there was one accord because of some major event or crisis. But one of the examples was because of the, the, the huge dilemma with Gentiles and Jews and kosher laws. And do Gentiles have to get circumcised in order to get saved? was this huge dilemma. So what did they do? They had to come together. And they had to listen to the testimonies and ponder the Word of God and pray about it. And so everybody with their differing opinions came together and it created, it generated one accord and they wrote the letter. Here's what the Spirit is saying and here's what we are saying because we are in one accord. This matters. Something is happening. It brought us together and we're, we're, we're producing something that's from heaven's wisdom itself. So even a matter like that, it wasn't some big supernatural event, it created one accord. God is right now as I speak, and beyond this, creating one accord in these groups right now. 
In Romans, Paul's ralifying points are this. this here's what I'm saying. Paul expected homothumadon when this letter was read. There wasn't Jesus flying up into the air. It wasn't the Spirit being poured out in a fresh way. There wasn't a major crisis, though there were problems in relationships that were significant. But Paul created ralifying points that are for us also. And the first one is this. He re-preached his gospel in a way some of those believers never understood it. And he said, we're indebted to God. We're powerful sons and daughters of His. And we belong to the larger destiny of the nations and Israel. We're a new creation. Rally around that. Letter B. Christ Jesus, the servant of all, he, he, he put forward as a rallifying point, And that is testified by the ongoing witness of the Scriptures. In other words, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul said, remember what Jesus was like. Let this rub off on you. He did not live for himself like so many of you Romans are doing. He lived for God and for you. That is your ralifying point. And when this letter was opened and read, the, the power of the Spirit backed up Paul's words. And then let her see his prayers for a move of the Spirit to create this passionate unanimity. That was another ralifying point. Paul prayed that people would catch the vision and would be infected by this infection of unity and glory. Our ralifying a point in number nine is also this text and this gospel, but as presently prophesied to us today for this present hour. God is stirring our hearts in a fresh way, reviving our gifts, and refreshing our heritage. I believe it's happening right now. I believe that's what the Lord has been speaking, and it's what several of us have been praying for. And I believe the Lord will put this on your hearts and awaken something in your minds. This is the ralifying point, ralifying point that creates the one voice of God's glory in verse 6. The unified testimony of the church's mission which glorifies God in terms of Jesus and the gospel. I believe there's a subtle revival just germinating in our hearts. I believe this word will help release it. That's what I believe. I believe it's a season when God is literally putting a fresh vision of Jesus before us to focus on the sense of his mission, the sense of his selflessness, and in one sense to catch that vision and just start doing, stewarding what we have to make this happen. I believe if we really wanted to change our city, we could do it. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it outside the leading of the Lord, but something like a sanctified version of the Tower of Babel, let's just pretend we all decided, hey, let's just meet more. I'm not saying do this. I'm just saying, for instance, Let's just meet more and pray in the Holy Spirit and then pray in harmony prophetically a couple of times a week. Let's give ourselves more to the Word in prayer. Let's just, just do it. And then let's, let's get together and let's really attack some issues in our city. Let's evangelize the inner city. Let's go to that bus station and just do the treasure hunting thing. Let's, let's, let's have a set, maybe a section of you just decide, let's totally invest ourselves in the justice project and just serve that and, and put a dent in this traffic you would see results. You'd see major change coming right out of your efforts because of unity of purpose and unity of effort in the Holy Spirit. It would happen. In one sense, it's before us. We could just start doing it. So finally and very quickly, number three is the prophetic and apostolic exhortation. Or put another way, in light of everything I said, brothers and sisters, okay, well, what do we do? Here are my recommendations 
to exhort you. Letter A. Rediscover God's overall plan and purpose for the gospel, which is expanding the Jesus community. In each one of these points, let's refresh ourselves. Let's go to each one of these points in the scriptures where we find them. And just refresh ourselves like we're pilgrims on a journey and we're just we're, we're, we're kneeling by the brook and we're just taking in more water, rehydrating, drinking afresh, splashing it over ourselves. First of all, let's rediscover in letter A, God's overall plan, we belong to something bigger. Letter B, let's recover the purpose for the past revival, whether we were a part of it or not. We are all heirs of all moves of God. It all belongs to us, according to 1 Corinthians 3. There's a larger move of God to which the former revival belonged anyway. That revival was going somewhere. It was hardly the end all. It was one step of many. So let's find out what God's path is and rediscover that. Several of us here were a part of the revival and had no idea how to translate that into regular life if we weren't called to full-time mission. Because we started getting married and having kids. And it's like, well, what do we do now? Well, now God is saying, now you're going to answer that. Now's your time. You've come into enough age of family life. Now take what you've had and, and massage it into your life now. Take this kingdom, if you're not called to full-time mission, and be a missional Holy Ghost family and church. Talking about your church. Do that now with what you got. You got the tools. You have the skills. Now God's refreshing something apostolic from that heritage. Let's start doing something with it. I believe now is a moment that's one of the fulfillments of the back then. So let's refresh and recover that. Letter C. Receive fresh revelation of the Jesus of whom this biblical text and this prophetic message speak. Good night, that's a mouthful. Get a fresh revelation of Jesus who's the king who lives as if in debt to his father, not to himself. Man, and I mean that. May the Holy Ghost anoint that statement. More than crisis, we should rally around Jesus. He's king and he's good and he's far more beautiful than we've realized. And I believe there are fresh visions of the Messiah King coming. Greater visions than we've ever had. But we need to see him in his glory with his scars and embrace those scars with the glory. I, just, I, could, I could taste it. I could smell it like there's a rain coming. There's something about Jesus that is now being shown to our hearts and shall be. And it will awaken something in us. Letter D. Recommit to your personal calling and mission. Recommit yourself to what God's given you to do. Oh man, I've got all these dreams and visions right now. I'm just home with the kids. There is something, there is something on you to recommit to in the context of your life that includes your family and is also besides them. It's both at the same time. You need something besides your family to bring your family into. And I don't know about your, we, we spend a lot of time together as a family. Just building our family face-to-face is important. Because it's difficult when you've got older kids and they have all these other obligations. But we don't just try to nurture our family face-to-face. We try to have something outside of us to take that nurtured family into. You can't just say, well, I got my family, I got my family. So do we. I understand how that is. You can't just be internal. You've got to take them out into God's purposes. So even within your context, letter D, recommit to your personal calling and mission. Letter E, recommit to this work if you're called here. Look, if you want to be a part of this work and don't have nothing to do with what I'm talking about, you are seriously more than welcome. You can hang around. I don't want to put some weird pressure on you. I want 
to be a benefit to anyone who comes at any time in any way if they just want to attend. No problem. Seriously, I want the love to be big enough. But there is a sense of mission that if you feel called to be attached to this work, then, then renew commitment. Not because we've had a lack of commitment, but because there's something forward before us from the Lord, and we're going with it. Hear what I'm saying. I'm not reacting to something negative. I think things are great. Usually there's more people here on a Sunday, first Sunday, but whatever. But that, that, to me, that's not illustrative of the point. My point is, if there is a feeling of calling here, then go ahead and recommit that and go to the Lord with it and see what that means. Because I'm not just talking about volunteering with the kids. All the parents have to do that. I'm talking about what's the mission of your church in our city. You guys have a church, you have generate, generated power with prophecy within and then the power of God without. What's God calling you, Kathy? What's going on here? Let's start to do something about that. You don't need me to take you through it or have something in this building for you to do. We only meet here once or twice a month. What's God saying to your church? Let's do these things. Recommit to the work. Letter F. Recommit to the people of God to whom you're called for sharing life and building one another. Recommit to the people. Letter G. Recommit to pray as Paul prayed in this passage. Praying for the saints. According to Romans 15, 5 and 6, for this work to be led and empowered by Jesus. And letter H, recommit to obey God and what he tells you in your home fellowship to do in this season. That is, recommit to the mission, whatever God is speaking. Let me have you stand and pray. I'm going to close with a prayer along these lines. We already had ministry. We've stretched out the time with the kids. So I'm just going to pray for God to use this message and pray for you guys to be blessed and then we are done. And please don't forget to take a booklet. Every one of you, in fact, if you've got an older kid that you think would benefit from one of them, you could take one for them too. And if we run out, we run out uh, in the future there. We'll go last one. And also for those of you who could help us break down, that'd be great. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful grace in our lives. We thank you for the gift of God and Messiah Jesus. We thank you for your kingdom that's unshakable. We thank you for the highest possible calling, privilege, and purpose that you've put on our lives to be your children and to be carriers of the life of the Messiah in this world. God, these are things that are so far beyond my mind, I can't even believe I'm praying them. I don't understand them. But I understand them enough to say that they're wonderful and we are grateful to you for them. Thank you for this wonderful kingdom. We pray that your will would be done in our midst. That you will take this word and you will not allow any impression from any human flesh to last. Anything said, anything felt that's not from you. We pray that you'll take it away and move by your spirit in the midst of this community, in the mystery of God through dreams in the night, through impressions on our hearts, through prophecies, through revelations, through teachings, through confirmations. Speak to every individual heart. Speak to families. Speak to children. Speak to churches. And create the work here that you want. Lord, we're not trying to be the best. We're not trying to be the worst. We're trying to be faithful. And we want to belong to the army of God in this city. So enable us and empower our weak hearts to do that. Anoint us in a fresh way. Uh, empower us to love you with abandon, to worship you with fire, the fire of our depths, 
not just the fire of our energy, but the fire of our debts. And Lord, we pray that in that environment, you will lead us into mission. Fill our hearts with compassion for the poor, the needy, and the orphans. Touch our hearts for the lost. Give us encounters with those that we are meant to intersect with for your glory. Raise up this work according to your will to join other works going forward for the glory of God, that the name of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ might be sanctified in this city by the love of the brethren and by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is king and worthy of our indebtedness to him and one another. Amen. No, wait, no amen. Father, I pray blessing on every person, every family here. I thank you for the testimony of healing while we were praying already today. But I pray that healing would increase in our midst. I pray for a release of signs and wonders. I pray for revival among our children. I pray that tonight even children will have dreams that give their parents insight. I pray for just a fresh release of the Spirit in every home. I pray that you will bless and prosper every person, every family represented here. Prosper them in their relationship with you, in their physical, mental, and emotional health, and in their finances. I pray for jobs. I pray for finances. I pray that your people would be blessed so that they might be a blessing. And may we, Lord, take care of one another. I pray for uh, blessed relationships, wholesome, healthy relationships in the body of Christ for these uh, precious children of yours, O God, and for these churches. I just pray that you'll rise up with your countenance of blessing on every home and person here. Jesus is King. And for real, I mean it. I'm not kidding. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys, and thanks for coming today.